0: Let me ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12. Uh, This morning we come to one of the weightiest and richest and most wonderful passages in all of the Old Testament. Um, Every passage of scripture relates to the gospel and preaches Jesus Christ to us. But there are some passages of Scripture that are just so clear and so precious. And this is one of those passages that we've come to this morning in our verse-by-verse study of Exodus. Because what we have in Exodus chapter 12 is the Passover. And the Passover is nothing less than a God-given illustration of the gospel. That's what it is a God-given illustration of the gospel. It's a real event that took place in time and in space, but this event took place and was recorded for us in the pages of the Bible as a picture, a depiction of the gospel. Much the way that C.S. Lewis used a fictional story with fictional characters to help children understand the gospel. So God uses a a story, in this case a true story, to help us understand the meaning of the gospel. We can make better sense of why Jesus went to the cross and what he did there because we have this account in our Bibles Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we read this Old Testament account, we read it now with our New Testament glasses on and we realize that this has always been about Jesus. Uh, There's another way that God makes this very clear to us. And it has everything to do with timing. With timing. So look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So so God tells Moses and Aaron as the leaders of Israel that he is now going to give them the calendar that he wills for them to use to mark their days as a new nation. And he says this month, the time that you're in right now, Moses and Aaron, this is to be for Israel month one. This is to be the beginning of your year. Now, we've already noted that at this point in our study, we are in the springtime. We're either in late March or early April, probably of the year 1446 BC. It's springtime. Don't you love the spring? Especially on a hot day like today. Don't you long for the spring? Um, Especially after a long, cold winter. Don't you love the spring? Those of us with allergies may prefer the fall, but still the spring is a great time of year. Uh, Springtime was very, very important to the Hebrews, right? Spring is the season of new life. Uh, Flowers bloom. The grass starts growing again. The animals come back out. We saw earlier that this was the time of year when the wheat was ready for harvest. And so from all of this that the Hebrews saw... In the land around them, they drew a theological conclusion. They looked at springtime and drew a theological conclusion. And their conclusion was this. Spring must have been the time of year that God first created the world. In other words, they, they saw each spring as an annual reminder of God's creation, almost like an annual anniversary. Of God's creating the world uh, they believed that what we might would call March 20th March 22nd they believed that that was the day on which God created the world day one now in these first two verses God is instituting this month as the beginning of the calendar year for his ancient nation of Israel Uh, What we mark as the spring equinox, March 21st on our calendars, became the first day of the year for ancient Israel. Back then they called this first month Abib. Today uh, most Orthodox Jews call it Nisan, the month of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. Now based on all of this, the early Christians saw a connection with Jesus. They believed that the coming of Jesus was the beginning of a new age, the beginning of a new creation. Uh, Jesus was the first of the new creation that is coming. Uh, Everything else in this world is touched by sin. Everything else in this world is under the curse, but Jesus wasn't. All of the new creation is going to be clean. Everything in the new creation is going to be pure. And they said Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Well, if God began the first creation, the old creation, in March and on our calendars, in the springtime, they deduced that he must have begun the new creation at the same time. And so thinking along these lines, they said, Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. We bet he was conceived in the womb of Mary in the end of March. Springtime. And then they counted nine months from there, and that's where we get December 25th as the date that we celebrate the birth of Christ. This is how they came to that date. They gave that kind of significance to the springtime. Now, We also see at the beginning of verse 3 in our chapter that it was on the 14th day of this newly instituted month that the Passover lamb was to be killed at twilight, right? So you have to remember, we have to think differently than we think. For the Hebrews, the day began at sundown. Sundown was the beginning of the day. Okay, And so, uh, twilight is just after sundown. It's the very beginning of the day when the sun has just disappeared below the horizon, but you still see some light, right? It's, It's twilight. For the Hebrews, this meant that on the 14th day at twilight, they were going to begin killing these Passover lambs. It was also on this 14th day that the Passover event would actually take place, both the Passover meal and the angel of death coming around the homes of Egypt, striking down the firstborn sons. So God says, this is going to be your first month, and on the 14th day of this month, you are to kill these Passover lambs, which will save your firstborn sons from death. And all of this God instituted to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, To make sure we don't miss the point, God ordained it so, that our Savior both shared a final meal with his disciples and then was killed, both as the sacrificial lamb and as a firstborn son on the 14th day of the month of Abib, the day of Passover. In other words, all of these instructions about months and about days, they're important for a prophetic reason. They are given... So that when the true Lamb of God would come into the world, there would be no mistake. He is the one who is the true sacrifice for our sins. He is the true Savior. There could be no doubt that Jesus was the one that all these Passover lambs pointed to. And so these dates that we see being ordained by God right here in Exodus chapter 12 are explicitly going to connect with the Last Supper of our Lord. And the day that he dies on the cross to help us understand what his death was really all about. Now, I get excited about things like that. Um, I, I love how uh, God in his governing of the universe, even in the, his matters of timing, he works things so perfectly that people with eyes to see can see that Jesus is the center of it all. Right? We are, we are uh, 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 more than a millennia before the time of Christ, and God is already working things so that it's centered on, on Him. Now, knowing that Jesus is the Passover lamb to whom all these lambs pointed, I want us to look at verses three through 13 under these headings. Here we go. Number one, the selection of the lamb. Number two, the killing of the lamb. Number three, the blood of the lamb. And number four, the eating of the lamb. So we'll begin with number one, the selection of the lamb. And we find this in verses three through six. So look with me beginning in verse three. Verse three. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses At twilight. So think for me for a moment about how important this lamb is. Imagine you are a Hebrew household. The angel of death is coming to kill all the firstborn sons. This lamb is your hope to save the life of your firstborn son. Without this lamb, your son will die. But not just any lamb will do. God declared that the only lamb he would accept would be one chosen according to his own holy requirements. The holy God demanded a holy lamb. And this is why, by the way, that you or I could not have been the savior of the world. Have you ever thought about that? There were lots of people crucified on crosses in the first century. There were lots of people killed by the Romans. Why was Jesus Christ the only one whose death could bring about the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is obvious. It's because Jesus was holy. He was sinless. He was was pure. He was blameless. From birth, Christ was full of the Holy Spirit of God. And though he lived as a true man, he was tempted in every way, as you and I are tempted. Yet nevertheless, he was holy to the very end. When other people died, they died as sinners. They died with their own sins to pay for. But when Jesus Christ died, he died with no sins of his own to pay for. The wages of sin is death. He didn't deserve the wage of death because he had no sins. and Therefore, he went to death as a substitute for others. He was qualified as a blameless, pure man to be a substitute for others. And because he was a God-man, he had a divine nature to uphold his human nature so that he could bear what no other man could bear, the wrath of God poured out on his human soul for all the sins of every person who would ever believe on him. God's eyes could have searched the earth looking for any human being who could ever live at any point in history who might would be sufficient, who might would be qualified to be the Savior of the world, but he never would have found such a man. And therefore God himself became the man so that we would be saved. Friends, this is exactly what lies behind these verses. A qualified lamb that the family would go out to the field And they would see the flocks of sheep or the herds of goats. And and not just any lamb could be chosen. The, The lamb must be a male pointing to Jesus Christ. And the lamb must be without blemish, we're told. In other words, this lamb could have no broken bones. He must not have a cut tail or a torn ear. This lamb must have no marks of scurvy on his fur. And when the lamb without blemish was found, he was to be chosen. He was to be set apart from the other lambs because of its perfection. This lamb alone would be accepted by God as a substitute for the firstborn son of the family. And did you notice in verse 6 that the family is to keep this lamb from the 10th day until the 14th day. So if, if you select your lamb on Monday... You're supposed to bring it home and keep it till Friday. The phrase in the Hebrew literally means to to keep watch over it, to tend to it, to care for it. This lamb was to be taken from the fields into the homes of the families. For four days, this lamb was was to become the family pet. You, You can imagine the kind of relationship that formed between the household and this animal. I mean, even if it was just any old lamb, you can imagine children bonding with this lamb, growing attached to this lamb. And yet this was not just any lamb. This lamb was their hope for saving the life of the firstborn son of the family. This lamb became precious to these families. Why would God command that the lamb come to live with the family for a few days before it was sacrificed? Was it not to teach that the true Lamb of God, though God Himself, though different from us in His holiness, He would come to dwell among us, the very people He would die to save. The Lamb of God came to dwell among us before He was sacrificed. Jesus Christ came into our world. He, he walked among us. We just read about it from the Gospel of Luke. Him walking in the streets of the Middle East. Living among those, He came to die to save. Well, that's the selection of the Lamb. He had to be a, a pure, holy Lamb. Now the killing of the Lamb. What does verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Uh, This was certainly not the first time that an animal would be sacrificed as a substitutionary offering. Go all the way back to the very first sin in Genesis 3. And after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, we find God sacrificing an animal in order to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So ever since the very first sin, there was this practice of, of sacrificing animals. And it became distorted by paganism. It was abused in many ways, but it was ordained by God to point to the message of salvation through a substitutionary atonement. One must die in the place of another. Was the message of the sacrifice? You see, a life that rebels against its creator should not remain living. The wages of sin, your sin, my sin, the wages of sin is death. God is so good. He's so infinitely worthy of all love and obedience and worship and adoration. Our our God is the fountain of never-ending joy, the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being. He is the life giver. Our God is life. When you reject God, you reject life. When you rebel against God, you are rebelling against the source of your life and not just one's physical life but life at its deepest meaning, existence in communion with God. That's what's lost in sin. These lambs were slain in the place of the firstborn sons to illustrate and to show in a way that people would remember and never forget that God's justice can be appeased through a substitute who pays that price on behalf of another. In one sense, the lamb became a part of the family. The lamb became one with the family. And then the family placed their sins on the lamb. And rather than them dying as they deserved, the lamb took the punishment for them. That lamb had never done anything wrong. But there it was. Its head on the block. The knife slitting its throat, the blood pouring out, the life of the lamb being given for the life of another. In John one twenty nine, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him over the horizon, and what does John the Baptist cry out? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Or Peter, First Peter one. He says that we Christians are those who have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Third heading, the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. Look at verse 7. Let's see what people were to do with this blood. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts That's hilarious. <laughs> Verse 7 Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So basically, the family was to take the blood of the lamb and they were to put it above the door to their home and they were to put it along the sides of the doors of the door to their home death would not be able to enter their home because blood was around the door. This blood was evidence that justice had already been satisfied. This blood was evidence that sacrifice had already been made for the sins of this family. No death need to occur here. No firstborn son's life taken here. The sacrifice has been made Think about what this was like for these families. First, they went and chose the lamb. Then they brought the lamb home and grew attached to it and cared for it. Then they killed the lamb. And they took the blood of this animal and they applied it to their home. Mount Hermon, you do realize that the Bible is a bloody book. It's a bloody book. 450 times the Bible speaks of blood. It's a constant theme. You just can't get away from it when you're reading your Bible. To folks who didn't grow up in Christian homes, and maybe that's you, maybe you're coming to the Bible as someone who's fairly new to the Bible. Guess what? You you might be shocked at how bloody the Bible is. You, You might be thinking, I don't know what to make of this. But for those of us who have come to know Christ... For those of us who have come to understand the gospel, we begin to know why the Bible is such a bloody book. It's because Christianity is a blood religion. Blood is evidence of life given. And at the very heart, at the very core of Christianity, is the truth that God gave the life of His own Son for sinners. Because Christ died shedding His blood, those of us who trust in Him are forgiven of all our sins. He he bore the punishment in our place. There is no hell in our future, though we deserve it. Instead, because of grace, because of love, because of mercy, we're going to heaven. Why? We were purchased by the blood of Christ. We were ransomed by the blood of Christ. The Bible's a bloody book, and guess what? True churches are bloody churches. Because you come into a church, and what are we singing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What are these Christians singing about blood all the time for? It's because it's our hope. It's what we trust in. That Christ's life was given. For us. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And by the way, we not only sing of Jesus' blood now, we're going to be singing about the blood of Jesus forever. Do you remember when John sees his vision of the worship service that's happening in heaven even right now as people are singing to the Lord Jesus Christ? What did John tell us that they were singing about in the worship service of heaven? He says, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Even in heaven, they're singing about the blood of Jesus and we will be forever. The blood of Christ is precious to the heart of Christians. But notice also verses 12 and 13. Notice verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Dear friends, this is the glorious message of the gospel. Do do you hear what God is saying here? He is saying the day of judgment is coming. My wrath is going to be poured out for sin. But listen to this. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's the good news. All of us, every single person in this room, we're, we're guilty of sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the weight of your guilt for sin. You, you know you've been living wrongly. You know you've been disregarding God, turning from Him, living in your own selfishness. You know you've, you've hurt others, you've lied to others, you've, you've done terrible things. And, and one day you're going to have to stand before a holy God. And on that day, when the day of judgment comes and you have to give a reckoning and an answer for the life you've lived, what are you going to do? What are you going to plead before God? And yet here we have it right here in the heart of, the, of this passage. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. This lamb was given for sinners. And when God sees the blood, He says, I will pass over you in my judgment. You are safe. You are secure. On the day of judgment, you will not be condemned. But by the grace of God, you will be brought into heaven itself. Men, women, boys, and girls, there is nothing more important in this hour, in this moment, than this question. Are you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him and had his blood applied to you? Our final heading is the eating of the lamb. You see, after the lamb had been slain, after the blood was applied to the home, the family was to have a meal. They were to roast this lamb. They were to eat this lamb. Look with me at verses 8 through 10, beginning in verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So think about the aroma of this lamb being roasted over a fire. The, and getting close to lunchtime now. Don't think about it too much. Okay. Throughout the Old Testament, we are told that this aroma was a pleasing aroma to God, which is really interesting because God doesn't have a nose. Over and over again, we're told that the aroma of sacrifice, the aroma of these animals being roasted over a fire, it's a pleasing aroma to God. But God's a spirit. He, he doesn't have a body like men. He doesn't have olfactory glands, parts, <laughs> right? He doesn't have a nose. So what does that mean? Why would we be told that this aroma of the sacrifice being roasted was a pleasing aroma to God? And, and the answer, of course, is that this pointed to the fact that God was pleased when His Son was willing to give up His life for His people. The, the death of Christ was terrible. The Father pouring out His wrath on His Son was a horrendous moment. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even in the horror of that moment, there was something deeply beautiful. Something deeply wonderful and pleasing to God about the sacrifice of his son. For his son was willing to obey him even to the point of death on a cross. Through the death of His Son, the glory of God's justice and His mercy, His his righteousness and His grace were being revealed. God was pleased with the sacrifice of His Son and it was His joy to raise Jesus from the dead and to give Him all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God. And guess what? In 2 Corinthians 2, We learned that Christians are a pleasing aroma to God as they follow in Christ's footsteps by giving themselves in service to others and by spreading the good news of Christ. That Christ laid down his life in the ultimate act of love, and it was a pleasing aroma to the Father. Now we are to sacrifice ourselves day in, day out, laying, out, laying ourselves down for, for each other in big ways and in small ways. And as God sees you sacrificing for others around you, he delights in it. He is pleased by your sacrifice. Your self-denial for the sake of others is a pleasing aroma to God. And then after the meat had been cooked, this feast was to take place. The whole family was to be together in the house, protected by the blood around the outside of the door. And within the the safe protection of this blood, they fellowshiped together. They they feasted on the lamb. It was a picture of heaven, church. Church safe and secure by the blood of Jesus, they're all together as a family feasting and rejoicing in God. This is heaven. No danger in heaven. No no death here. No pain here. No sorrow, sickness, distress here. Because of the blood of Christ, we're together as a family rejoicing. We will know that one day. Dear Christians, we will experience that. What did they eat with the meat? We're told they ate this unleavened bread. All right, this is a picture of purity, a picture of holiness. Uh, leaven was used as a picture of sin and how sin can spread, how sin can rise and grow in a person's heart, in a family, in a, in a community. So unleavened bread is a picture of purity, of cleanliness. God's people are to be a people of holiness. In heaven, we will feast together, protected by the blood of Christ, and we will be pure. No more battle with sin there. And bitter herbs were served. Why bitter herbs? Why bitter? Well, maybe this was a reminder that the feast came at a bitter cost. And so mixed with the joy of the feast was a a reminder of the bitter sorrow that had to come first in order to secure the feast. But others say, no, maybe it's this. Unleavened bread is bread that you can eat quickly. You don't have to wait for the dough to rise. And many commentators say that the bitter herbs, these were herbs that could have been gathered quickly right around the house. In other words, this feast is happening in the context of haste, right? This is the night of the 10th plague. This is the night when Pharaoh's going to say, go. And so there's not a lot of time for this feast. So we look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So even as the family ate this meal, They were eating it in haste as an act of faith. We believe that what God had said is true, that Pharaoh's going to let us go tonight. We're eating this, this feast as God has told us to because we believe his word and we're ready for the command to leave Egypt. We're trusting our God. We're eating as a people ready to go. And did you notice that the whole lamb was to be eaten? none of it was to be wasted why well there would be nothing wasted in the death of christ which is what this is all about Uh, here's one of those reasons why i believe that jesus actually purchased people on the cross jesus didn't just go to the cross and make salvation possible no, Jesus actually went to the cross and suffered the exact amount of suffering. He experienced the exact amount of the wrath of God necessary for justice to be satisfied and not one moment, not one degree of Christ's suffering was in vain. Not one moment, not one degree of his suffering was wasted. I do not believe that Christ suffered for people and and suffered for their sins, who would then go on and pay for their own sins in hell. I don't believe God punished the same sins twice, and that that suffering of Jesus was wasted. No, I don't think that at all. We're told that by His blood, He ransomed people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. He paid the debt that they owed. He didn't pay the debt for everyone. Jesus paid the debt for those who are His, and they will certainly be His, and they will come to Him in faith. Not one moment of his suffering, not one moment of his death was wasted. And so that's how we must close this morning. Dear friends, is Jesus Christ your Savior? Can I show you one last thing? Go back and look at verses 3 through 5. I want you to see this progression in verses 3 through 5 because it's in the Hebrew. I had to go back and check. It's in the Hebrew that this progression happens. In verse 3, we read about a lamb, a lamb. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. But in verse 4, it goes from a lamb to the lamb. And if the household is too small for a lamb then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And then notice what happens at the beginning of verse five. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You see, only after the family had taken the lamb to itself, only after they had selected the lamb, brought it into their home, did it become their lamb. That spotless lamb of God out in that field did them no good. The lamb had to become their own. Only then would its sacrifice count for them. Only then would salvation be theirs. Yes, friends, Jesus Christ is a lamb. He is more than that. He is the lamb. He is the only way to get to heaven. There is no other way. He is the lamb. But here's the real question. Is he your lamb? Have you made him yours? There must be a choosing of Christ. Yes, I am a good Calvinist. I promise. I believe with all my heart. If you're saved, God did it. I believe with all my heart that it is not ultimately of the will of man. It is the will of God uh, that salvation takes place. If we're saved, we're going to say by grace it happened. But That doesn't change the fact that when salvation happens, it happens because we choose Christ. We come to Christ. There must be something in your heart that comes to Christ and makes Him your own. Have you done that? Kids, teenagers who sit in here week after week after week and you hear the messages about God and the gospel and Jesus Christ. As you're hearing, as you're hearing, as you're hearing, is your heart going to him? Is Jesus just Jesus the Savior or is he Jesus my Savior? If you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, Hear these two verses from Romans 3. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Listen, by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. How does the blood of Jesus get applied to you? How do your sins get covered? How do you get saved from death? How do you get the promise of heaven? How does Jesus apply to you? You must believe. You must make Him your own by calling out on Him, turning from your sins, and pleading with Christ to be your Savior. Have you done that? Is Jesus Christ your Passover lamb Eternity is at stake. I pray that he is. Let's pray. Let's pray.